going here. Join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come together as a, as a family. And we pray that you help us to open up your word together and uh, also now to look at, at the history of your people together. We give all this to you in Jesus' name and pray that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, going through the Renaissance, in fact, today is the last day in the Renaissance. So if we can do this right, if we can do this right, if I can get through this, hopefully it'll be the last one. But that's all right, because the next one is fun. The next one's Reformation, so that rocks. But to get to the Reformation, we really have to have everything fall apart. Gotta, there's a reason why this came about. I mean, as we've been talking about, it's not just that all of a sudden people went, oh, I think we've got some ideas. It's like, no, things keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So uh, last time we talked about 1492 being a huge year for Spain, right? First, because they finally got rid of that last little bit of Moorish influence, and they kicked out the last Jew from Spain. So King Fernando is like, ah, oh, this is what 1492 will be remembered for, is that we'll finally, finally be a Christian nation. Right? That's what we remember them for, right? Not so much. Anyway, but it's 780 years that they've been trying to get Christian Spain back. I can understand why they're excited about it. I get that. It's also the year that Fernando and Isabel sent uh, Christopher Columbus westward. Talked about that at length last time. And then we ended with, this is also the year that Spanish Cardinal Rodrigo Borja became the new Pope Alexander the, the, uh, the Sixth, right? You remember the Borgias when we talked about the Borja family of Spain? Not a great, not a great family that we've been talking about. A bunch of thugs. Pope Calixtus III, Alphonse de Borja, had made sure that Rodrigo got to be cardinal. He bought him a nice cardinalship and angled him toward his own papacy. This is going to be great. You know, this this thuggish mafia family from Spain gets to be popes. That's wonderful. Now, while, card while he was a cardinal, Rodrigo had a sexual relationship with a woman named Giovanna uh, de Catenai, or uh, they also, well, yeah. And then he married her off to this church official so that she could live near him. And then they continued their affair. Very openly, by the way. Everybody was aware of this, including her husband. Her name was Giovanna, but they called her Banozza. And she was no stranger to affairs with cardinals because she also had an affair with Cardinal Giuliano over here, who ended up becoming eventually the future Pope Julius II. So she'd slept with two popes by the time she was done. What? Some of the names rung about. Just reading through yeah. it again. So okay, oh, that's right, because yeah, you've done. So anyway, she's been she's been sleeping around with different cardinals because she likes that. She it's it, you get uh, 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 a lot of uh, a lot of cardinals and popes by by this time are for all intents and purposes elected royalty. You don't have to be born into the royal family. If you have enough money, you have as much power as an as as a, as a royalty. Yeah, actually, in fact, he invented a position in the church for her. She got her own. She got her own church office, which is nice. Yeah, that's. I'm sure. What the, pretty sure office was basically just a bed. So I mean, I don't think. I don't think you can see this as an empowerment for woman necessarily. Now she bore Cardinal Rodrigo four children. Two while she was married to one guy, and two while she was in another later arranged marriage to another guy. Yeah. So 
at this time in history, in the, in the Renaissance, it, even more so than in, in, the, in the Middle Ages, in the Renaissance, it's not just a matter of who you're married to, but who you're sleeping with. Um, and, and, and if you're a woman. If you're a guy, you might be able to do things based on your own merits or how much money you have. But if you're a woman, it's basically how cute you are and whom you figured out to, to sleep with. So she's giving him four children. First one, Cesar, we talked about a little bit, Cesare. Cesare Borgia is a military guy uh, who was an absolute tyrant to the regions that he conquered. Um, controlled him with an, iron, with an iron glove. Who got elevated to cardinal when his father became pope. What? His hand is very small for his head. Well, his head is very long. And it's just the proportions are a little funky on this, but still, it's a famous painting. So. Anyway, so Cesare, rotten human being. Had one legitimate daughter, 11 illegitimate children by a couple of different people. Class act. Consummate politician. Famous for one time when he, he, he said, you know what? Now that I'm in charge, now that I, I've got some power, I'm going to bring everybody that I know that, uh, that, I've, got, that I've, I've got a rivalry with. We're going we're gonna to have a big New Year's Eve party. Never, never go to a Let's Bury the Hatchet party. What? What? No, this is going to be... Yeah, no, actually, he had them strangled. Strangled? Yeah. Strangled? Whatever. It's a cartoon figure. That's true. Three fingers and a glove, like Mickey Mouse. So. I see why his iron fist was fingered. Hey, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's going to be it's so good to be one of those days here in Sunday school. But, Slimeball. Honor Slimeball. He was so bad that Nietzsche loved him. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, late, writing later in the, in the 19th century, said he's the perfect example of the Antichrist. In fact, he wrote about him in the book called The Antichrist. He's like, it's the perfect example of the Antichrist who should have been made Pope. Because then Christianity would see what, how a wolf would shepherd the sheep. It's like, you got to understand Nietzsche's argument. you got to understand that human beings are essentially either wolves or sheep. Just one of the two. You are either predator or prey. And it's wrong. It is immoral, thought Nietzsche to ask wolves to try to protect sheep. The universe, not God, because he didn't really believe in God, the universe created wolves to be wolves, created sheep to be tasty. That's the whole point. And so he's like, what we sh I wish Cesare would have ended up becoming Cesar, would have ended up becoming Pope, because then you would understand what I'm talking about. Then you would have seen a genuine wolf who was completely unafraid of acting like a wolf. So, if you want to think of the classy, classic Nietzschean ideal, Cesare Borgia, Cesar Borja. They also had another son named Juan, or Giovanni, who married into becoming the, 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 the Duke of Gandia, and, and lots of money, lots of power, lots of influence. So he got murdered. Um, well, I mean, that's the thing, is you're either going to... It's totally true. He got married. He got murdered. By Cesar, his brother, uh, uh, to remove him out because he and Juan were political rivals and, and, and military rivals. Either that or by their little brother, Jofre. Geoffrey. One of them murdered their brother. We're not exactly sure which one. But if so, Jofre did it because Juan was sleeping with Jofre's wife, Sancha. But then again, so was Cesar. And Rodrigo. Um, who at this time was already the Pope. So Sancha was kind of getting around. But remember, like I said, if you really want to be a successful woman in the Renaissance, sleep with successful men. That's what you do. She had a lot of secrets. 
Well, she's she's living through it. It's it's the brother that gets murdered. But yeah, she actually she gets killed too later. But that's then there's also Lucretia, Lucretia Borgia. Um, actually, I could have written it in, in Italian, but it's still it's still surprised Lucretia. So you know, Lucretia. Anyway, Pope Alexander marries her off at age thirteen to this influential uh, guy named Giovanni Sforza, and Sforza the Sforza family. Is another one of these growing, powerful families, um, and, and, and marries her off when she's only thirteen. And then once Sforza fell from power and influence, once he wasn't all that important anymore, um, the Pope says, oh, "I declare the marriage annulled." Never happened. And Sforza's like, oh, "You can't, you can't really do that." He's like, "Yeah, but you're not important anymore. I don't care about you. Um, you were impotent. You never consummated the marriage in the first place." Yes, I did. No, no, never happened. Miracle. It is ironic because she did have a kid that year, the same year that the marriage got annulled. She had a kid, but he wasn't the father. Actually, the father was either Cesar or Rodrigo. We're not sure which, but one of the two actually fathered the child by Lucretia, because a papal bull, an official papal bull, named the kid her son and half brother. Fun family, right? <laughs> so she got married off at age 18 to a completely different guy, the wealthy Alfonso of Aragon. This guy, this will be great. In fact, uh, Alexander strong-armed the king of Naples uh, to make this happen. He's like, you you will either make sure that they get married or you're excommunicated. Because your daughter wouldn't marry Cesar, because she's apparently smart. Since the king's daughter wouldn't marry Cesar, then you got to find me the second most powerful person in, in, in Naples, Alfonso of Aragon. Apparently you have at least a little bit of say in this, and I wouldn't marry Cesar if I were a woman. Guy's on a gutter slide. Anyway, so she had a son by Alfonso, and yes, it was really by Alfonso. But then he torqued off Cesar, who had him murdered, so... Apparently, you just don't get in the way of Cesar. This, this is this is a fun family. So then she got married off to another guy, third guy, third guy, at age 22. But she ended up actually having more sex with his younger brother because that's the way this worked. And in fact, she had sex with so many different people. We really don't know who was the father of her next six children because there were probably multiple different fathers. Do you understand why Showtime made a sleazy series about these people? <laughs> the original crime. Yes! These guys are absolutely vile! You don't even have to juicy it up for Showtime or anything. You go, no, this is pretty much ooey-gooey, yucky people doing horrible, horrible things. I want you to get a sense of who's in charge of the church at the moment. Alexander actually held orgies in the Vatican itself including something that was called the Banquet of Chestnuts, supposedly, on April 30th, or October 30th, uh, 1501, where 50 prostitutes were brought in to service all the cardinals, <coughs> and the Pope and Cesar officiated Lucretia may or may not have been there. We don't know exactly whether she was there or not. But they gave prizes to the cardinals that could have sex the most often, uh, with the most number of prostitutes and things. Alexander's own master of ceremony said there is no longer any crime or shameful act that does not take place in public in Rome and in the house of the pontiff. Who could fail but be horrified 
by the account of the terrible monstrous acts of lechery that are committed openly in this house with no respect for God or man. Rapes and acts of incest are countless. His sons and daughters are utterly depraved. Great throngs of courtesans frequent St. Peter's Palace. Pimps, brothels, and whorehouses are to be found everywhere. A most shameful situation. This isn't his detractors. These are the people that work for him. Okay? That's who's in charge of the house of God. That's who's in charge of the church of Jesus Christ. On the plus side, he was also a patron of the arts. And so he, he engaged uh, Michelangelo to redesign St. Peter's Basilica. We're going we're gonna to rebuild this. We're going to have a new one. This will be great. It's kind of, you know, evens things out, doesn't it? Speaking of, speaking of rich guys hiring artists, Leonardo da Vinci in 1494 paints the Last Supper. Okay, he was hired by yet another rich guy, but this one, uh, Ludovico Sforza. Oh, you know one of those guys, right? Um, the Duke of Milan commissioned da Vinci to paint this mural in a monastery in Milan. Now he decided not to paint it as a fresco. He decided that if he really wanted these this vibrant colors, this depth of color. He wanted to paint it on dry plastered wall, not not as frescoes. Frescoes are the, the, the wet, that's the way um, Michelangelo did the Sistine Chapel the ceiling was on the wet stuff. He said, no, I'm doing it on the dry stuff. Unfortunately, it didn't weather very well, and the humidity just chopped it to shreds. Which is why this is not the Last Supper. Pardon me. Yeah, but that's what everybody thinks of. Everybody thinks of this being Da Vinci's Last Supper, right? That is not Da Vinci's Last Supper, because this is Da Vinci's Last Supper. It just, it's torn apart, all right? Where did this picture come from? This? Yeah. Oh, you mean the other one? Or this one? This one is from, they took a picture of the, of the, of the wall. This is the way it looked, um, the, the way it looks. The other one is uh, a, a repro that somebody else had done not on a, on a, on a dry plastered wall. There were several people that came, even while he was painting it, and, and sketched it and everything, or, or, or painted it as he was painting it. So we actually have lots of different, part of why we have so many different How versions of it. That like no, no. Well, as good as you're talking about the restoration thing that somebody did, somebody has tried to, the various tries, uh, uh, restorations over the years, and different people have had a cow about that, uh, as to how well they've done with that. Um, some experts have said that only 20% uh, the restoration represents the work of Da Vinci, 80% the work of the restorer. And so, I mean, some of those little things like uh, exactly how does the, the fold of his, of his robe, does it rest on the table? Is it behind the table? And yet, I get what they're saying is that the people are like, oh, now we get back to Da Vinci's piece. No. Um, so some people have sat there and said this is, this is a, just a travesty that uh, that the restorer is putting their own work over Da Vinci's. Other people say, well, I'd, I'd rather have 20% of Da Vinci than 100% of everybody else's stuff that they've shellacked over it over the years. Fact is, it's falling apart. That it was falling apart even while he was painting it. He was so disgusted. He's like, no, by the time he's finishing it, it's falling apart. And he felt so bad about it. He felt really bad about a lot of his stuff. He's like, none of my stuff seems to be working. Um, he, uh, he said the material simply didn't exist in this era to create the parachute he'd invented. It just doesn't work. Or, or that helicopter idea. Or the mechanical tank. Or those machine guns. I can't build my stuff because 
The stuff doesn't exist to build my stuff with. It'd be great if we could... I wish there was some kind of lightweight metal that I could use to do this. Like aluminum. But there is no aluminum yet. I'm just a failure. He basically... I mean, he just he spent so much of his time feeling like, I, I'm not the best painter in the world. My last supper falls apart. I'm not the best or better in the world because none of my stuff works. I'm a failure. I just go, poor Leo. I feel so bad for Leo. He was desperate for attention. He was desperate for accolades. When he went to parties, he would, he would bend iron bars with his hands or bend coins with his fingers. He was really, really strong. He desperately, desperately wanted to be affirmed in things. And he worked for the Medicis. He worked for the Porsches. He worked for different sort of people. And still, he died. He felt like he was being kind of a failure. Poor Leo. Tried, yeah. Oh no, no, that was kind of a that was kind of a thing. I mean, if you're a master, to have people come and, and copy your work was was a thing. Just kind of like uh, um, now, we want to make sure that we have really good photographs of the stuff in the Louvre so that you can look at them even if you don't go to the Louvre. Same sort of thing. It's like, well, you can't go to Milan, but here's essentially what he painted. Pardon me? Code. Oh, God. Oh. Oh. oh, I hate that book. Talk to me some other time about that book. Oh, there we go. No, but one of the that's things. Mary over there. Exactly. You know, he says, that's Mary because it looks like a woman. You go, it, it looks like a blob. You don't know yet what it looks like. Anyway, 1494, still, same year. The Treaty of uh, Torsadillas is, is signed. I'm moving away from Da Vinci Code. Oh. Uh, so you got Alexander, Spanish Pope, right? Spanish Pope Alexander giving large chunks of Africa to Spain because he's Spanish. You know, I, I thought I thought Portugal got Africa. Yeah. yeah, but I'm Spanish and I'm the Pope, so Spain gets Africa. Portugal's not at all happy about this. They said we had a treaty back in 1479. We had a treaty that said any land south of the Canary Islands, sitting right here, any land south of that belonged to Portugal, right? That would include Cuba and the New World, because it's all south of the Canary Islands. Oh, my goodness. I thought that was east. Yeah. South and west. There's a debate going. There's a debate going. So, that's south. That's south. Anything south we get. Spain goes, no, 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 no. We got anything west. Plus, you said no to Christopher Columbus. He came and talked to you, and you said no. You said, who's interested in that? You don't get to do this. There's a debate going. So, they finally say, we're going to re-divvy up the world again. <laughs> Alright? So here's the way this goes. Is it because we have the power God's doing it. Because the Pope is deciding this. Therefore, yeah, you get the power to do this. So we're going to make this nifty little line here. Everything east of this line is Portugal. By the way, that gives you a tip of this, you get Brazil. Ever wonder why they speak Portuguese in Brazil and Spanish everywhere else? So it's like, you get Portugal, you get you get Brazil, you get Africa for the most part, it's all yours, it's all this gray stuff, it's all Portugal. Spain, you get all the other stuff. So anything that's that's west of that, that's yours. Nothing. They're sitting up there going, We only, we only have half of our own island. England is dying at this point. They're shriveling up and dying. They'll explode in a little bit. 
But right now they're shriveling up and dying. Now, what's interesting is this only works until you deal with the New World. What happens when you get to the Far East? Is it the Far East or is it the Far West? Is it over here? Or is it over here? Depends on who draws the map. Uh, and uh, it depends on what direction you go, but also you're going to have to redivvy this, right? You're going to have to redecide because who gets China? Who gets Japan? Portugal or Spain? Isn't China pretty powerful? So? They're pagans. Yeah, it, especially for things like this. You go, okay, everything west. Well, if you keep going, isn't Japan west? No, no, Japan's the Far East. That's why they call it that. Duh. Even Japan thinks of itself as the Orient. That's why they refer to themselves as the Orient. We call them the Orient. Shut up. So anyway, this is going to get really interesting once they get Asia into the picture. They're going to have to re-divvy this up again. So before we get to the end of the century, before we get to the end of the, of the 16th century, we're going to have to redivide the world again. Luckily, the Pope is there for that, and he gets to decide what parts of the Orient belong to Portugal and what parts belong to Spain. As Jesus intended, clearly. Anyway. 1496, Portugal goes, Spain had a good idea. We're going to get rid of our Jews. So two, four years ago, Spain got rid of theirs. Portugal goes, we're going to expel ours. You're going to have to leave Portugal, convert, or die. Because at the end of 1496, they will have no Jews in Portugal. All right? But we're going to do this a little different. You get two caveats that Spain didn't put on there. Number one, you've got only a couple of days to leave. That whole three-month thing, way too long. You get like a week. If you're not gone, you you either die or you have to convert, and we get all your stuff. Second, you can only leave on approved ships. There are specific ships that you have to use to leave. Otherwise, we'll kill you. So you try going up into, into France, but they're not going to like you there either. Yeah, the Ottomans didn't help with this one. Uh, in fact, the priests of the Catholic Church met them on the docks and prevented them from going on the ships because they had to go to specific ships. And so they blockaded the ships and said, you need to convert because you can't seem to get to the ships by the, by the due date. So thousands were converted and thousands were killed. That's what we need to do for outreach. I mean, we've been wondering what's the best outreach thing. The best outreach thing is to say, you need to be able to go through that door or else we'll kill you. By the way, we're going to stand in front of the door with Bible tracts. So have you done Peoria yet? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have dynasties deal with ISIS. Oh, it's great to know that, uh, that we have Christians who have learned from history. All right, 1500. Let's actually start to move toward the next century. The Timur dynasty, remember, do you remember Timur, Tamerlane, when we talked about him? Uh, Timur the Lame killed over 4 million Christians as the sword of Islam. Huge, important guy in history. Sword of Islam, 150 years ago. His empire is finally going to crumble. It's been hanging on for, for 150 years. But under its own political weight, with all the infighting and things, it's finally going to chew itself up. So it's going to divide into two halves, and these are important. The first half is a Shiite Muslim Safavid empire. And this thing is going to last for another 230 years. This is important. So you've got a bunch of Shiites over here, 
And then on, and, and, and the, and the right-hand side, on the southeastern part, you get the Mughal Empire, the Sunnis, who take over, like, northern India and things like that. They're going to last for another 350 years until the British kick them out when the British say, now nah, I think we walked in. Yeah. So it's like, this is two very important things. These two are going to keep coming up in terms of European history. We're going to keep running into them. How do Shiites and Sunnis get along with one another? Not so sticking well, right? So there's relative stability in this land, in this era. You know, these two things last for an extended period of time, several centuries, and yet they don't like each other, which is why, since the Savavids also don't like the Sunni Ottomans, Sunni Shiites, Sunni, you kind of squeeze in between two different things. They they don't like the Ottomans, so they start making alliances with Christian Europe, which is why. For an extended period of time, this area, this area is seen as pro-Christian, which is why you have so many British interests in this area. Syria, um, Persia, all that kind of stuff are seen as very pro-European. Not so much now, but there's a time where you go, these guys are very pro-European. There's a reason why Brits had a had a presence in the Sudan, etc. At different times in history, different clumps of Muslim groups have connections to to Europe, defending themselves against other clumps of Muslim groups. Does that make sense? So we'll see this come into play several times in the next couple of centuries, which is why I'm spending time talking about it now. Strange bedfellows. When you're surrounded by people that hate you, weird bedfellows. You go. Yeah, the Shiites, ironically, the Shiites are the ones. Nowadays, the Sunnis tend to be people. The more mild. The mild ones, right? Yeah. yeah. Think oh, I thought it wasn't Saddam Hussein a Sunni? Mm -hmm. Okay. But he's also a nut, so. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you said they're just. You, with some people, it's hard to gauge, well, is this. Are they nutty because of their religious affiliation, or are they just, just nuts? No. 1503, Erasmus publishes the Enchiridion. I gotta stop. That's the same year that Pope Alexander dies, 1503. <coughs> um, he and Cesar go to a banquet and come down with a fever afterwards, or are possibly poisoned, since they both had this bizarre fever right after they went to a banquet. And there's nothing they could do to save the Pope. He dies badly. It's a horrible, slow, painful death. Cesar, they were able to save, though the medications apparently peeled his skin off and left him horribly weakened for the rest of his life. He, yeah, well, hey, yeah. <laughs> halfway through, you know, we got the death of this guy. Alexander dies very badly. Cesar survives very badly. Um, Alexander's corpse looks so bad, nobody will touch it. You're supposed to like kiss the hands and feet of the corpse of the, of the Pope. Nobody will do that, because it looks so gross. And I'm talking, this is during the Renaissance when nobody bathes and they're used to that. You know, so it's like, when these people say, I'm sorry, the corpse looks too gross, the ew factor on this is pretty high. I'm not even going to read the description. The description is oozy gross. Unpleasant. Cesar dies four years later. He had to wear a leather mask over his face because it was so disfigured. His body was rife with syphilis. And they left him naked in the streets. They ripped his clothes off and ran off, and they left him there for a little bit. Could 
that happen to nicer people. Really not a big fan of the Borgias. So I had to bring that up. Anyway. So how did the Greeks answer? Um, differently. That's a whole other thing. All right. 1503. Erasmus publishes something called the, the Enchiridion. Um, he was originally from Rotterdam, which is why sometimes he's referred to as Erasmus of Rotterdam, even though he only lived there for like four years. But uh, he was the illegitimate child of a Catholic priest because there's apparently a lot of that going around. Um, he grew up crazy poor, so he went into the ministry because that's what you do. You either become a crime boss or you become a priest. And this whole idea of the classic thing in like Mexico or inner city Chicago or inner city New York where you go, well, you either become a gang member or a priest. Yeah, it's still back then. It's the exact same thing. Uh, so he went into the clergy, and even though he was crazy poor growing up, he had the opportunity to learn Greek and to read a book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Anybody ever hear of this book? Have you read it? I love that book. All right. Thomas Akempis is one of these people that I, I'm like, do I agree with absolutely everything he said? No, but... He comes off really nicely in history. He's, he's actually a classy guy. He's a German scholar who hand-copied the Bible at least four times that we know of. So he's read the whole thing and copied it by hand at least four times. And he came to this realization that you need to have a personal relationship with God. That, that reading the Bible is like, you know, it isn't just about going to church and jumping through this hoop and genuflecting this. I mean, he's still devoutly Catholic, still into a lot of the uh, the, uh, the Catholic um, devotional rituals, etc. But, but it's all about doing so within the, the context of a relationship with God. And so he's like, no, it's not just a series of rules or, or, or things. You need to have a personal devotional relationship with God and live that out consistently. As he wrote, he said, at the day of judgment, we shall not be asked what we've read, but what we've done. Have you lived this out? Has this been real in your life? He's not talking about a works or salvation. He's talking about is there a genuineness to what you're doing? And so he emphasized the need for a personal devotional time for all Christians. It's like you need to re reboot yourself. But so maybe he read James. Maybe he read James, yeah. You just, just live it out here. Just do something with this. And I, I love the way he wrote it in Imitation of Christ. He said, Make clean the mansions of your heart. Shut out the whole world and all its sinful din and sit as a solitary sparrow on a housetop. Just drink God in. Remind yourself what it means to be a Christian. And then don't stay there on the housetop. Go and live that out. But make sure that you spend time engaging with God and then living it out. And engaging with God and living it out. Reboot your system. I like Thomas Kempis. He's kind of cool. So this is the most, most read book in the world of its time. In fact, even now it's been translated into more languages than any other book ever written second only to the Bible. Big, booyah, cool, yippee, good book. Nietzsche hated it. So I sit there and I go, yes, good. <laughs> he hated it. Because the whole point of it is to talk about living at peace with God, uh, finding that calm amidst the storm, being selfless in your obedience to God. All the things that Nietzsche said, that's exactly what we shouldn't do. And he said, only some feminized man should read The, the Imitation of Christ. That is, that, is, that is wrong. These Christians have this horrible idea they're trying to emasculate men. Okay, I can't help it, but when I, when I read things like, um, uh, oh God, what's, Wild at Heart. Uh, I, I, I can't help but think Nietzsche would have liked this kind of Christianity. The kind of thing where you say, that whole feminine 
be at peace and be obedient and be selfless. Heck with that. Run, jump, climb trees, fight for Jesus, fight, 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 fight. You go, yeah, great. Pardon me? Conqueror. Conqueror, there you go. All right. So Erasmus has read this. He's studied Greek. And he says, you know what? I think, I think we need to make sure that we don't just go through the motions of this. I think we really need to be sincerely attempting to be God-honoring in how we live. I think we as a Catholic Church have gotten used to just go through motions. We don't believe this stuff. We don't live it out. We preach that people need to obey the Catholic Church, when what we really need to do is to preach that people need to have a relationship with Christ. Like Erasmus. He said, you know, we've got all this sin, all this hypocrisy in the leadership. We, we need some reform. We need genuine reform. We need to change this sort of stuff. And he starts writing and being very popular in writing. So he writes the Enchiridion, this, this manual of the Christian soldier. And he says, just like a soldier, you need to discipline yourself. You need to daily discipline yourself because you're just, you're flabby. And not only are you flabby, but we've created generations of flab to the point where I don't even know if we're Christian anymore. Can you really call yourself a soldier if you have never trained, you never wear the uniform, and you never pick up a weapon? I don't think you're a soldier. Can you really be a Christian if you've never trained, you never wear the, 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 the livery of a Christian, and you never pick up the weapon of God? I don't know. He says, charity doesn't consist in many visits to churches and many prostrations with the statues of saints and the lighting of candles or the repetition of a number of designated prayers. Of all these things, God has no need. He doesn't need this from you. He is charitable who rebukes the erring, who teaches the ignorant, who lifts up the fallen, who consoles the downhearted, who supports the needy. If a man is truly charitable, he'll devote, if, if needs be, all of his wealth, all of his zeal, all of his care to the benefit of others. If you really want to have religion, care about those around you. Now I'm back to maybe he's read James. So, a lot of people sit there and go, yeah, he's a proto-reformer. This guy starts the reform movement. Arguably so. Then again, he also debated against the reformers. He debated against Martin Luther. He said, no, you know, the, the only thing I hate more than corruption is divisiveness. You have just You've divided Christ's church. What? Luther never looks good in this picture. Luther was just not a photogenic guy. <laughs> but he also thought reformers were throwing out the baby with the bathwater. He agreed with all the problems that they said were in the Catholic Church. But he's like, by leaving it, you've missed the good stuff. He says, you... You disclaim bitterly against the luxury of priests, the ambition of bishops, the tyranny of the Roman pontiff, the babbling of the sophists, against our prayers and fasts and masses, and you're, you're not content to retrench the abuses that may be in these things, but must needs abolish them entirely. You don't fix them, you just throw them out. But look around the, on this evangelical generation, observe whether amongst them less indulgence is given to luxury, or lust, or avarice, than amongst those whom you so detest. The solemn prayers of the church are abolished, but now there's very many who never pray at all. Confession to the priest is abolished, but very few now confess to God. You, he does have a point. He's like, you, you sat there and you said, let's get rid of all the bad stuff. Who, we shouldn't be confessing to a priest. And then you say, okay, let's just do whatever we feel. You have 
Isn't this, by the way, the argument that Paul is using in Corinth, going, okay, you do have freedom in Christ, but you're using it as a license to just do whatever you feel like doing. So at least for 1,500 years, that had been a problem. It continues to be a problem today, right? So do you sit there and do you say, if you really want to be a Christian, you need to get your life right, Michael. Bill, you need to, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to do some things right. If you're not doing them right, you're not really a Christian. Like, you need to work on this, you need to work on this, you need to work on this, or you're not really a Christian. So your Christianity is passively or overtly based on whether or not you do good stuff. Is that healthy? You go, no, no, no. And you go, no! It's not about whether you do good stuff or not. It's about, have you been regenerated by Christ? Do you have a relationship with God? Which should make you want to do good stuff. But it's about that. Do you, Donna, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Whether or not you actually go to church, whether or not you actually read your Bible, whether or not you ever share the gospel, whether or not you serve your fellow man, that is irrelevant to your Christianity. You need to just love Jesus. You and God have your own little relationship. The other stuff doesn't matter. You're right, it does matter. Brian made an eh sound. <laughs> Excellent argument. Alright. Okay, Don, it does matter. How you treat your fellow man, whether you read your Bible, whether you do stuff, it does matter. It's, it's important. It shows uh, the validity of your faith. You need to do that, or else you're not really a Christian. Right? You're right. That's not important. No, it is crucially important. No, it's not. Yes. It's a hard balance to strike, isn't it? And it's something we need to keep striking. It's not something you go, I got this figured out now. And then I don't have to worry about this. No, it's a sermon we need to keep hearing over and over and over again. We need to remind ourselves. You said... <laughs> Terrifyingly, yes. That's exactly right. We, we, we lurch back and forth, and when we need to stop and say, no, wait, how much of this do we need to keep? Which is, by the way, why um, some people really did have a problem with a lot of Lutheranism when it came out. They're like, you've, you've gotten rid of some parts of Catholicism, you've kept some parts that we shouldn't have, and you've chucked other parts that you shouldn't have. And, uh, so Calvin says, all right, let's... Let's chuck all of that and, 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 and go back to a scriptural, systematic theology. And then Menno Simons comes along and says, but you held on to this and this and this. You've got to chuck all of it and start with scripture. And anything that's from scripture, that's what you build on. So which of these guys is right? Erasmus, who says we need to remain Catholics and fix Catholicism. Luther says, I'll keep the same systems, but we'll, we'll shift them into something else. Calvin? Pardon? Exactly. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having a pontiff who is overarching the church of God, saying that he's the vicar of Christ, and everything that he says from the magic chair is God's will. That's fine. A hierarchy of priests over bishops over priests, and priests over rectors, and rectors over people, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with the system. I hear what you're saying. But this goes back to that whole, it's a balance. Are, are there things inherently flawed with the hierarchical system of the Catholic Church? Absolutely. Did Lutheranism hold on to it? Absolutely. So, and, and, and the Church of England even more so. And so Calvin says, oh, I'm going to take this and this, this doctrine, but I'm going to build a, a systematic theology around them. Menno Simon says, chuck all that, start with the Bible. It's tempting to sit there and go, oh, this is what we should do. Absolutely. I come out of an Anabaptist background. The idea of checking everything and starting with Scripture, I love that. There's a purity to that. However, it begins with exactly the sort of thing that Erasmus hated. 
chucking everything that's come before and every tradition that's come before. So what would Erasmus's um, reform look like then? What would he have done with the church? Um, he would have, he would have, even you're asking me, um, he would have made sure that people had access to Bibles for themselves, that people themselves were praying and having a devotional life. He would have argued that um, you should get rid of all the corruption. People like the Borgias should not be allowed to be popes. Um, th that sort of thing. His was more about keeping all the structures and all the traditions and all the basic doctrines alive, but actually giving people the opportunity to live them out sincerely and genuinely. So, so again, yeah, I wouldn't have agreed with all of Erasmus's theology, but his basic heart, I think, is, is, is rock solid in this. But because of that, because he said, let's just fix Catholicism, he talked off everybody. All the reformers sat there and said, you're, just, you're, you're keeping the bathwater, you're keeping the stuff that's wrong, you're keeping the wrong theology, you're keeping the wrong structures, you're just trying to be Catholic. And all the Catholics sat there and said, fix what? I like my lechery, I like my corruption. What? Nobody liked it. Because he tried to stay in Catholicism and just fix that, he annoyed everybody. Or Erasmus. He started with that. Well, we'll talk more about that next week. Yes and no. Yes, he started with trying to, to, to fix it, um, and that got more complex the more he worked on it. So you could make an argument that Erasmus was essentially being naive about what this could be, but I still feel bad because I'm like, he's just trying to fix it and have a good heart about it and not be divisive, so everybody hated him. Okay, 1506. Julius is kicking in as pope. This is great. Uh, he's called the warrior pope because he had a predilection for actually leading papal troops into battle himself. In fact, this is not the way his armor looked. But it's not entirely off. He did wear plate mail, and he did have a helmet that was a helmety version of his papal mitre. And he did like using a mace. So, um... It's Sauron. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm never going to be able to unsee that now. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, gosh. All right, Eric. So you got this, this this pope going around whacking his enemies with a with a big, heavy stick. And he's a, he's a political rival of Alexander. Never liked each other. They're constantly berating each other, constantly accusing one another of, of different things. It's not lost on some people that uh, Alexander's successor, uh, who's another rival of Julius, only was in, in, in power for 26 days and died under mysterious circumstances. So Alexander may have been poisoned and Pius may have been poisoned, neither of which Julius liked, and then Julius gets to be Pope. I'm just saying. But he liked Alexander's plan, and he said, I'm going to ask Michelangelo to redo St. Peter's. We're going to get him to do this. In fact, two years later, I'm going to get him to, to repaint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel I'm literally wanting to overarch my uncle's accomplishments. My uncle had different people do all sorts of nifty paint. This is over and above everything my uncle Pope Sixtus did. Pardon? It's above it. And again, as I said before, even Michelangelo was like, "This is just a this is just a vanity piece for Julius. This is not what I want to do. I don't want to spend years doing this for Julius." Julius also hired his own Swiss mercenaries. Pardon me? <laughs> All right, fine. They're silly looking. Let's admit it. The Swiss Guard are a little silly looking. 
because their their outfits are so archaic, right? Because it's this is the way they look for five hundred years. They kept it the way they look for five hundred years, right? They look like that today. This is not the way that they look for five hundred years. This is not the way they look. They used to just look like normal uniforms, just like French troops or British troops or German troops. The Swiss troops just dressed like soldiers. Up until 1914, when the Commandant said, we really ought to go retro. I gotta know who's the first one to go, yeah, okay. It's like, wait, <laughs> wait, we gotta start wearing what now? Yeah, but we're gonna reflect the Church of Rome's timelessness in what we're doing. Everybody's clothing styles. Priests, nuns, soldiers should be locked in the style of the Renaissance. Have you noticed that? Isn't that what they are? We tend to think of it as holy robes. You go, no, no. Renaissance robes. Why? Why is that? Why do you think it is that the, the Catholic Church tends to sit there and say, we're going to dress like this, and, and has been so resistant to anything that changes with time in glory terms of... Days. Glory days! Yeah, why does the BBC keep making shows set in the 1930s? Because that was the last time that they were the ones on top. And you want to remember when everything was on your side. After the 1930s, everything's kind of gone downhill for Britain. So you love those glory days. Uh, back the time when we, when the sun never set on the British Empire, and everybody knew that we were the masters. Remember back in the Renaissance when we, like, ruled the world? That rock. So we're going to talk about the timelessness of Rome. We're all going to dress like this. Silly as we, as they look, they're really, really tough. These kids are really crazy tough. You do not mess with the Swiss Guard. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's, it's a boy named Sue syndrome. But they, I mean, they get the best trainers, the best stuff, the, and the best of the best. They're like the Delta Force of Europe, dressed funny, right? But you don't tell them that, or the step you like a dry twig. You know, these guys, very, very tough. Now, Julius has, has instituted the Swiss Guard, and it's Ulrich Swingling. Has anybody ever heard of, heard of Swingling? It's his experience serving as a chaplain with the Swiss guards, as a Swiss priest, that <clears throat> he saw firsthand how the papacy had taken over and abused the church. It's like, I see what they've done. And this leads him to becoming a reformer. He says, the Swiss see the sad situation of the Church of God, the mother of Christianity, and realize how grave and dangerous it is that any tyrant, avid for wealth, can assault with impunity the common mother of Christianity. If you just have enough money, you can buy yourself the papacy and rape the mother of Christianity. I saw this because I was a chaplain of the Swiss Guard. We need reform. There is no way I'm staying in this church. Everything has a context, right? You get enough, enough popes who are enough messed up, and things change. 1512, Fifth Lateran Council. We've heard these Lateran Councils before that the Pope brings. Actually, Pope Julius has, has been saying for a decade that he's going to have a, a council. He swore under oath in 1503, I'm going to have a council. I will call a council, and he doesn't do it. So a couple of the cardinals say, we're going to have our own council. We're going to get together, and we're going to talk. So Julius immediately disbands it, angrily disbands it. says, I was just about to make my council. You guys are all in trouble. Um, we're going to clarify in my council that only the pope gets to call a council. And anybody else gets excommunicated, because only the Pope gets to do this. Um, 
No books can be printed anywhere unless a bishop says that they can be printed. No books of any kind. We will control this. Also, we're going to have a crusade against the Ottomans. Because that's totally going to work. By the way, the Safavids go, yeah, knock yourself out. We want you to do a crusade. It's exactly what we want. Crusade them. Crusade on their butts. That's great. 1513. Nicola Machiavelli writes a book called The Prince. Ever heard about this? It's dedicated to Lorenzo de' Medici. You remember the Medicis, right? This is the, the classy mafia family, as opposed to the thuggy mafia family. You know, the Borgias are thugs. The Borgias and the, and the Medicis hate each other. Hate each other. No, they got kicked out of Florence for a little while, which is actually important. They've been around. I know, man. I told you. It's been like five classes worth. I know. I because. Peoples, peoples. Um, so, this book lays out the philosophical groundwork of, of how a, a, a ruler should rule. Now, I say here, what makes it a classic is it's the real, first one to do this modern sense of the realpolitik. What actually works? Not what should work. Not what's moral. What actually works. Part of why Hitler did so well in the 20th century is because he was living out realpolitik at a time when so many rulers were trying to figure out from their leather armchairs while sipping cognac the way a gentleman actually does politics. And Hitler's like, this is what actually works. And so he won. And so Machiavelli said, it's, for instance, it's better for a prince to be feared than to be loved by his subjects. If, if people follow you out of love, you've got to keep making them love you. You've got to make them love you this week. You've got to make them love you next week. And if you ever do anything that they don't love, they're not going to follow you anymore, right? The president of the, of, the, of the American church, a pastor is only as good as his last sermon. I mean, this is, this is, the, way, uh, this is the way we tend to do it, because we want to build things out of love. And he says, that is the least efficient way of doing it. If you make a follow, follow you out of fear, you just need to make him fear you once. I, I need you to, uh, who have I picked on you? Uh, Michael, in the back. Michael, I need you to do something for me. And you say, no. So I, I take you and I flay you alive in front of everybody else. And I go, hey, would you like to do something for me? I'm yeah, 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 I'm totally in, I'm totally in. I don't have to flay too many people. Because Michael's flayed corpse is still on display, right? This makes a certain amount of sense, doesn't it? Terrifyingly enough. It, it's the most brilliantly realized Ends justify the means work in history, because it actually works. In fact, Machiavelli even lauded Cesar Borgia for being such a shrewd politician. This guy is the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Now, what's interesting is this is exactly the opposite of everything that you'd ever expect from Machiavelli. What? Machiavelli wrote the and dedicated it to Yeah. Yeah, that's odd, isn't it? Sure, I'm clear. Machiavelli was a devoutly ethical government worker under Florence when it was a republic, when it was a democracy, when they had ousted the Medici and they brought in this democracy. He was part of that. This is this is awesome. And he wrote about the importance of it. He wrote against the Borgias and all their corruption and things, saying that they're absolutely vile. When the Medici came and retook Florence, they tortured Machiavelli for three weeks. To, uh, to get him to admit that he had, had, in fact, worked with the Borgias. And he's like, no, I actually didn't. 
And then they released him at the end of three weeks, and he never held a government position again. And it was after that that he wrote The Prince, and dedicated it to Lorenzo de' Medici, whom he never met, and who was not his patron. Why? Very good point. All this has led a lot of people to believe that it's just the most misunderstood satire of all time. Hey, Lorenzo, if your family is going to lead like this, then here's the way to totally throw morality to the wind and lead simply in ways that treat people like disposable wind-up mechanisms, you know, like your rivals the Borgias would do. The problem is, like I say here, if he really was writing as a satire, he did it too well. Because the system that he wrote actually works. And people have been living this out by for centuries. But if you ask me, I tend to think it was a satire. I tend to think this is his way of going... This is the only way I can write against the Medicis. I can't, I can't say anything directly about it, but what I can do is say, you go this far, what you should do is go this far. Kind of like, kind of like when Jonathan Swift said, hey, you know, you're treating the, the, the Irish as if they're subhuman anyway. I think this is really stupid. You guys are starving them out. That's ridiculous. You should feed them on good grasses and grains and then eat them like cattle. If you're going to treat them like this, you ought to get some out of it. And everybody went, He's a cannibal, for crying out loud. No, Jonathan Swift is saying you shouldn't be treating the Irish like this. I think Machiavelli is saying you really shouldn't lead like this. He just writes it very, very well. That is probably the best synopsis I've ever heard of. It. Yep. You're trying to appeal to the conscience of people who have no conscience anymore. Speaking of that, 1513. Pope Leo X took power in Rome. After, you've had a couple of Borgia popes, now the Medici say, we want to buy our own papacy. We need to get a couple of our own in here. Four Medici popes in the span of a century. This is the first one. We're going to get him in. So Giovanni, John, we're getting John in here. He's going to become pope. He's not even a priest. His dad bought him a cardinalship, or a uh, 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 deaconship years before. But he's not even a priest. They just bumped him from deacon... Um, Sarah, you're a deacon. Yeah, you get to be Pope. You go, are you even remotely qualified to be Pope? No, you don't even have a special hat. So, one of the first acts that he does is to cozy up to Fernando, because now Spain has taken Naples. So look at this. You get this, this, this Spanish block here. Like I said last week, the going kingdoms are now Portugal and Spain. Poor little England is getting all shriveled up there. Never to rise again. Leo loved being Pope. He's like, this is great. In fact, he wrote to his brother, since God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. I'm going to have a blast with this. Through lavish parties filled with lots of pretty young men, because he's extremely homosexual, and got much more flagrant as time went on. The older he got, the weirder he got about this kind of stuff. And he traveled around Rome with his own personal circus. While people are starving in the streets of Rome, He's running around with clowns and panthers and bears. And his favorite, how about the white elephant? Because he's Pope. He gets to. Lots of assassination attempts on this Pope, by the way, as one might imagine. He's got the Swiss guys, yeah. It does, except that there was no bread, and these circuses were just for the Pope. Bread and circuses only work if you give the bread and circuses to the people who are grumpy. <laughs> if, you, if you if you keep the bread and circuses, right? But you surround yourself by them, and you're oblivious to everybody else. That is true. So at one of his Good Friday's parties, he raised a goblet of wine and announced a famous toast. Does anybody know 
Anybody, anybody ever hear the toast that lay of the tenth day? How well we know what a profitable superstition this table of price has been for us and our predecessors. There are historians that have summarized this in the more familiar, it has served us well, this myth of Christ. He didn't buy it. He didn't believe any of it. I'm only the Pope. I don't believe any of this. But it's, I mean, drink up, boys. This is great, isn't it? <laughs> he actually had wine tasters. His own secretary, Cardinal Pietro Bembo, said that Leo was known to disbelieve Christianity itself. He advanced contrary to the faith, and since he condemned the gospel, therefore he must be a heretic. Again, not a detractor, his own secretary. He was guilty of sodomy with his chamberlains. He was addicted to pleasure and luxury and idleness and ambition and unchastity and sensuality. And he spent his whole days in the company of musicians and buffoons. His infallibilities, I like that he refers to him as his infallibility. He was like, his infallibilities, drunkenness, was proverbial. Remember, we've already talked about drunk as a pope. You know, as being a proverb at the time. He practiced incontinency as well as inebriation, and the effects of his crimes shattered the people's constitution. His extravagant lifestyle actually financially bankrupted the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so he began selling off everything. Sold statues of the apostles, sold the hats off of cardinals, sold furniture, sold dishes, sold silverware, sold indulgences by the score. What's an indulgence? Forgiveness for a syndicate. If you give me enough money, then you get forgiven for what for fill-in-the-blank number of sins that you plan to do. Um, you're going on crusade, which is when these were usually given. Going on crusade, I will forgive you in advance for all the people you have to kill on crusade. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry. Boy, I hope I get absolution on the battlefield. You're already forgiven for that. Him, he's like, I just need money to pay for my circus and my wine and my cute little boys, and I just need the money. So anybody who wants to do any crimes, give me enough money, and you're forgiven already. In fact, common phrase of the day was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Give me money, stay out of hell, pay for my parties. That's Christianity. That's Christianity in 1513. What's your take on that? You have people like Thomas Akempis sitting over there in Germany writing good stuff. You have people like the Waldensians getting slaughtered by the thousands and holding to their faith. You have people like Erasmus going, stop, 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 stop. But you also have a lot of priests getting rich. There's a lot of people that made a lot of money off of this and had a lot of power. But you also had priests that couldn't take it anymore. They're just like, I can't, I can't, I can't just watch this. I mean, we had, we had Alexander followed by Julius followed by Leo. Are popes getting better? Um, yes, but again, uh, it, uh, uh, just like with Christianity, um, a lot of Islam had kind of devolved into more politics, which is why you have Muslim kingdoms fighting other Muslim kingdoms because they disagree. There's a gazillion different sects of Islam at this time. And it's not even right now, like it's not even presidents or Muslim countries, which is actually Yeah, yeah. 
And even that's a little complicated because they don't necessarily have high priests. It's, they've got scholars who help you understand the hadith. Yeah, so, pardon me? Kind of, yeah, almost more like rabbis than priests. Good point. Um, but really crazy, potently powerful rabbis. Rabbis with pointy sticks. Um, but you have a lot of people. Yeah, it, it, you, you, so Islam is, is still growing, but they're, they're, there's so much fighting and infighting over Central Asia and over the Middle East and over Africa and over different things. You've got Muslims selling slaves to Christians and making money off of that. You've got um, the Mauritania region of, of North Africa that's got influxes of Spain and influxes of Jews and influxes of things. So it's, all the other Muslims tend to look at them and say, well, you're not pure Muslim. But even then, you've got the Ottomans who are fighting against the, um, the Shiites. So, I mean, just, yeah, it, it's growing, but it's, it's doing a lot of this kind of re-leveling of things. The Ottomans keep invading Europe, and they've taken large portions of Eastern Europe at this time, right? It's about this time that you've got the, the Ottomans fighting in, uh, in like, Transylvania, and this is when we talked about Vlad Tepish last time, right? Or two nights ago. Some priests, though, can't take it anymore. So in 1517, Martin Luther posts 95 theses on a door. The main thing that he's got the biggest problem with is those indulgences that, that Leo is, is, is signing. He's just like, you are so morally corrupt that you have bankrupted the church, and now you are trying to sell, you're trying to sell salvation to people to pay for your sin. This has to end. It's not, and ultimately, and this is where we're going to talk a little bit more next week, Starts off by saying, we, we've got to fix this, and it, it, but it, it, it becomes much more than that. It becomes much more than we've got, Erasmus is we've got to reform the church. It becomes, this is morally corrupt, and we need to do more. But we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity of understanding where we're coming from. Lord, I pray, help us to see not only just the uckiness of history, help us to see the people like Thomas Akempis or Erasmus or Peter Waldo or Jan Hus or um, any of these people who are trying so hard uh, to, to hold on to truth. I pray, Lord, help us to, when we look at our world today, to see how many people justify, um, even, even how many of us can justify, um, doing our own version of things and wrapping it in biblical terms. Help us, Lord, to love you well by living out the genuine truth of your gospel. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, Reformation. So, you know, it all gets better, right? Not the way that works. <laughs> I thought she did, if I remember correctly. I, I just remember, I remember looking at it and going, "That's complicated. It has nothing to do with church history." So I moved on. But, um, but if I remember correctly, I, I think she, I think she survived into old age and then and then got poisoned. I think, but I might be confusing with somebody else. So, um, uh, part of why I'm like, eh, I don't want to go to that right now because I just, oh wait, I'm supposed to be turning off my, my recording. <laughs> Sorry for all those of you listening to this.